0: You can't buy a bucket from the Warman Automotive Group, but if you're looking for a great deal on a newer, quality, pre-owned vehicle, drive the lane and score one at one of their six locations, right there in Fort Wayne. You'll have Kia, Infiniti, Lexus, Nissan, Subaru, and my favorite, Toyota. There's something for everybody at every budget. The Warman Automotive Group believes in doing more for their employees and their families, more for the customers, friends, and neighbors, and the Warmer Automotive Group believes in doing more for what makes Fort Wayne a greater community. If you check out one of the six locations in Fort Wayne, just tell them I sent you. You won't be disappointed. Shout out to the Warmer Automotive Group. Thank you for sponsoring this podcast. Before we get into this episode, we got to give one big shout out to AJ's Beef and Burgers and Beer right there on campus. Make sure you go by, get you a burger, get you a beer, watch a game, hang out. Best burger spot on campus. Make sure you check him out if you're ever in town. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Boiler of a Rayfield Davis podcast. Uh, Today we have a special guest, a legendary guest, um, a Purdue legend, a basketball legend, someone that, whether it's Purdue or not, you know his name. Uh, Someone I'm very um, grateful that he took his time to spend with us today. Everybody, welcome. Coach Steve Lavin. How you doing, Coach?
1: Great, Ray. Looking forward to uh, some basketball banter and... uh... Talking uh, about the Boilermakers, of course, as well.
0: Right. Yeah. No doubt. And before we, um, before we get into that, because I know a lot of fans like myself, we're curious to kind of the, the coach, the person before the coach, kind of where you come up. Kind of I know you were born in San Francisco. You played for San Francisco. Um, kind of tell us about that, and kind of when did you put the, the ball game in your hands?
1: Yes. Yeah, so grew up in Northern California. And I was the youngest of six children and fortunate to have parents who were outstanding models. And um, I'm sure we'll touch on that again, how important teachers, uh, coaches, uh, leaders um, can be in terms of shaping, you know, a young person and, and putting young people on a positive trajectory. And so I had parents that were really interested and engaged in raising their children and trying to instill all the right virtues and values. And uh, they're also in my youth, some outstanding little league coaches and uh, CYO coaches, you know, playground directors. And um, that was a theme kind of throughout my life is uh, older people that have life experience that took the time to build my confidence and to uh, put me on the right path and uh, all the way through to coach Katie, you know, uh, who I met obviously down the line. So uh, my father and my three older brothers all played basketball. And so I think that's where the natural inclination to want to pick up that ball, as you said, and try and put it through the hoop came from uh, because I watched them as a youngster and, um, Then fourth grade, probably around 10 years old, is when I first played organized basketball. And initially, didn't really have a good experience. There was someone on the team uh, that had the green light because his father was coaching. And um, I liked to play defense. You know, I was a a transporter, but didn't have a great experience. Uh, But as the years went by and I gained confidence and developed my skills, um, you know, then my love of the game uh, was at a higher level, and then I was fortunate to go to a high school up here, Sir Francis Drake High School. Outstanding coach um, George Lewis was my like frost soft JV coach, but Pete Hayward uh, in these area in this area is was really successful and uh, one of the best coaches. And we won a couple state championships. Um, we were sixty five and one over two years, thirty one and one my junior year, and thirty four and zero my senior year. We won. Uh, 58 straight games uh, over that period. So I was a role player and, uh, you know, happy to be on the team. And uh, because of that success, uh, that's, you know, another reason uh, my, you know, interest in basketball uh, continued to build. And then I played basketball, San Francisco State uh, under coach named Lyle Damon, my freshman year, then Kevin Wilson, my sophomore year, and then coach Wilson left to Chapman University. After uh, a lead eight division two NCAA tournament run, our team had the Gators and uh, he had an opportunity to go to Chapman. So I ended up following him cause I had an interest in coaching. He was my mentor. So I finished at Chapman. And uh, after graduating, uh, I was fortunate. It's a long story, but it ultimately came to Purdue and uh, had three years under Gene Katie in the big 10. And uh, that's when of course, Matt painter and I crossed paths. Right. I think it was my second year when uh, he arrived uh, at Purdue. And uh, Matt Waddell also uh, was on that team, Chucky White, Steve Scheffler, uh, you know, a good group. And uh, then had an opportunity to come back West to get closer to my family and and ended up spending 12 years at UCLA. And Then I was at TV for seven years with uh, ABC ESPN. Then I got back in coaching at St. John's for five years. And then now I've been at Fox Sports and doing the NCAA tournament with CBS and Turner uh, in the postseason uh, for the past uh, five years. So uh, the years go by, but it all started in terms of my professional career uh, at Purdue in 1988 when Coach Katie gave me the opportunity of a lifetime uh, to join the Boilermaker staff. And Bruce Weber was an assistant, Dave Wood, uh, Frank Kendrick, Tom Ryder. Uh, so they were like older brothers. And once again, I was the youngest. Um, and that's a theme, too, because I was the youngest assistant at Purdue. I was the youngest assistant at UCLA and then the youngest head coach at UCLA. Uh, but what's interesting is now I'm the old guy. <laughs> it's amazing how that happens.
0: <laughs> how did you and I mean, just curious. I mean, like you said, being a young guy and just being right out of being right out of chat, you said. I mean, 22, 23 years old. How do you get how do you get bit? I mean, Purdue had just won back. I mean. If I'm not mistaken, Purdue, just won back-to-back Big Ten championships. How do you get from Chapman to to Indiana? How do you even know to even try to get to Indiana? Yeah, good question. Well, my college coach, Kevin Wilson, Mm -hmm. had grown up in the
1: Midwest. He played at Ashland College and was under Bill Musselman. Mm -hmm. And then he later was an assistant for Bill Musselman at Minnesota, when they had Kevin McHale and Flip Saunders and Dave Winfield and uh, Mark Landsberger and uh, some other outstanding players. And so when Kevin Wilson was out West and I was playing for him, in San Francisco State and at Chapman, he'd always talk about Big Ten basketball and the great rivalries. And uh, from Johnny Orr, who was at Michigan, you know, back in the day to uh, Coach Katie to Bobby Knight, Judd Heathcote, you know Tom Davis. So uh, hearing those stories about Big Ten basketball uh, is what initially uh, piqued my interest. And uh, then I later started writing letters uh, to coaches throughout the country. Jerry Tarkanian at UNLV, uh, Coach Katie at Purdue, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, and Bobby Knight at Indiana. And there were other coaches, you know, aren't as well known. Um, Hank Egan at San Diego, Jim Brandenburg, Uh, was at San Diego State. So I started pen paling with these coaches because I aspired to someday be a coach. And I wanted advice or direction in terms of, you know, books I should read, camps I should attend, uh, clinics I should, uh, you know, attend. And um, then uh, over the period of those two years, uh, the opportunity arose to come, uh, the opportunity came about, to where I could actually go back and visit the programs and spend time. And that's what led to a visit in the 87, 88 season. I spent uh, a month at in Indiana with Coach Knight and his staff. I just kind of couch surfed. I lived with Brian Sloan and Chris Smith. I was in their apartment. Craig Hartman, who was a manager at the time, later an assistant coach at Indiana, also uh, was really helpful. Ron Felling, um, you know, let me stay at his place some. Um, and, um, you know, Dan Dockich was on that staff and Joby Wright, uh, Tate's lock. And so um, had a, you know, great introduction to big 10 basketball at Indiana and uh, coach Knight, let me sit on the bench for the home games and was able to get in the locker room, pregame, uh halftime and post game. And, uh, you know, was able to break down film with the staff. So he, um, you know, was someone I learned a great deal from, and then I went to Purdue, did the same thing with the Boilermakers, and uh, Kevin Stallings was an assistant at the time, and Bruce Weber, and Tom Ryder, Dave Wood, they really embraced me, and uh, Coach Katie allowed me to have another, you know, fully immersed experience uh, in Boilermaker basketball, Uh, then I went back, finished up school, and, um, and then started sending resumes out, you know, with my cover letters, and, uh, fortunately, you know Kevin Stallings went to Kansas as an assistant when Roy Williams was hired by the Jayhawks, and uh, that presented an opening uh, for me to get a foot in the door at Purdue uh, 33 years ago, and um, everything from there just kind of flowed. You know, I met Coach Wooden while I was at Purdue because uh, he would come back when he was getting honored, uh, and that played a part in me going to UCLA, and uh, definitely was instrumental in eventually becoming the head coach at UCLA right. uh, because coach Wooden's advocacy and the ties to Indiana and the big 10 and his love of Purdue. Yeah. Um, and also his love of language. My dad was an English teacher and coach Wooden was an English teacher. Uh, so there are just a lot of kind of common threads, even though he was from a different generation. He was born in 1910 in uh, Indiana and passed away in 2010, just short of his hundredth birthday. Um, but again, back to Coach Katie and the opportunity uh, to come visit, and then ultimately join his staff is what led to meeting Coach Wooden, and, and that uh, was a game changer in terms of uh, his influence and just the doors that it opened, and eventually the opportunity to coach UCLA.
0: Right. No, that, that's um, that's amazing stuff. I mean, there's so many different things you can hit on, and what you just said, just and just the first thing I want to hit on is just. Just because so many of you so many people could learn from what you did. You you didn't sit around and wait for somebody to come to you. You said you wrote letters. You was pen powdered. So especially in this age of technology, there's no reason why someone can't get to where they want to get to if they put in the work. Because I mean, for you, for you to go out and seek mentorship, I mean, it just because trying to talk about what mentorship means to you and kind of where it's gotten you. I know you I know you've mentioned a lot of mentors, but does it mean something specific to you, mentorship? I think,
1: you know, people that have life experience can be assets. They they can be so helpful Um, in a way they can cut your tuition in half, you know, where you don't have to maybe uh, make the mistakes. Uh, If you have great mentors, you know, by them sharing their experiences, um, you know, we can avoid some pitfalls. You know, we still learn most through trial and error, uh, in any industry, in any craft, in any vocation, any walk of life, um, you know, it's the hardship, uh, it's the adversity uh, that informs, um, you know, a more powerful, um, you know, perspective. And so uh, I just think, you know, having people uh, in your corner, and having advocates, and having people uh, who've lived life and have more wisdom, uh, you know, more experience. And to be able to tap into that, there's no greater curriculum. And uh, so often it's things, you know, you can't learn uh, in a classroom. Uh, You know, it's not the textbook uh, that you buy at the bookstore. Uh, These are real life experiences and they're brought to life in a three-dimensional way by your mentors and, uh, you know, parents, teachers, coaches, Again, playground directors, you know, mentorship can come in a lot of forms, but it basically is people that care and believe in you. And sometimes mentors are, you know, providing you direction and some discipline and putting a fire under your fanny. Uh, Other times they're encouraging you or providing courage when you may not have it yourself. And that's what encouragement is really about and uh, having a feel for when to put an arm around someone because they need that encouragement and love uh, and also when to put a fire under their fanny and to let them know, you know, what's unacceptable. And when they're out of bounds, you know, they got to get back in bounds or get back on track. And so it's a feel. And I think just like parenting, you get better. You know, my parents would always talk about, you know, they were learning as they went with the six children, you know, it's trial and error and they were becoming better parents by the fourth child, the fifth child, the sixth child. And I think coaching is the same. You know, if I look back at my career, independent of the records, because you can have a great record, make a deep run in the NCAA tournament, uh, but just be scratching the surface in terms of your full potential as a coach and uh, players as well. They could be putting up big numbers offensively, but not be a complete player. And then as the years go by and they understand the subtleties of their position and how to add value as a teammate, how to be a better leader and how to set their teammates up to play to those strengths uh, or, you know, uh, those are, are things as a player. And I think as a coach, we get better as parents, we get better as leaders, we get better. And uh, that's if you're interested, you know, you don't get better if you're not continuing to work at it. Uh, But if you're interested in your craft, your vocation your profession whether you're a musician uh, an artist right a vocalist a coach a teacher uh, you know you're going to get better right. and uh, yeah. so mentors set that example um, by the way they lead their life and I've been fortunate uh, to have remarkable mentors from my parents uh, to coach Katie uh, to coach Wooden to coach Herrick uh, and then there are even some mentors again that aren't well known in terms of, you know, from a public perspective, uh, but has influences, as much influence as any.
0: percent no, 100%. I've had the, one of my mentors, Jared Quarles, I mean, Brian Rogers, I've had the same mentors, probably 11 10, 11 years old. So, I mean, it's something that for me in the, in the age of technology so much, I can look above it because I've had people, like you said, when I'm out of bounds, they put me in it put me back inbounds because it's, it's big. And that's the reason why I started my camps is because I had someone to give back to me and put me, put me in place and kind of show me the way. So it's the reason I put together my basketball camps to kind of give back and show other kids the way. And, uh, just speaking of basketball, camps, we have our summer basketball camp coming up June 21st there in West Lafayette, June 21st, June 24th. I just I got to throw that in there, but going back, going back to, um, Going back to coaching, going back to just now again, you got to Purdue, you're 22, 23, 24 years old. They just won two Big Ten Ten championships. I'm just thinking of me as a player. How do you come in and gain respect from those guys as the new guy, as the young guy? I mean, out the seniors, the juniors, the guys that's been there for a while, the guys that may even be your age?
1: Yeah, good question. You know, I think number one, you hit the nail on the head with that word respect you know, begins by showing respect to the coaching staff uh, who had prior experience, you know, at Purdue. And so following their lead and, you know, taking cues from them in terms of what's important to Coach Katie and, um, you know, also finding out how I, how I could add some value uh, and also showing respect to the players uh, in terms of being interested and taking time to engage with them and listen and you know provide the perspective that I was capable of giving for that juncture at my life. Right. Uh, and again, as you mentioned, I wasn't, you know, too many years older than them. Yeah. And um, so I think, you know, listening is, is something that, you know, I think is as important as any attribute uh, that there is. And, uh, you know, so I was someone that listened uh, and learned through observing and asking questions. And that's how you build your knowledge base. And in particular, when you're around, you know, the Jerry Tarkanians and Tim Gergoviches and Coach K's and Gene Katie's and Bobby Knight's and John Woodens, um, it'd be foolish to not be all ears and also uh, to not formulate and ask meaningful questions because you know we're only here so long and you want to you know take full advantage of those rare opportunities where you can learn from some of the best in the history of this game and um, so I think I came in as a listener and then also you know took direction from the staff Uh, coach Katie being the boss uh, but also you know Bruce Weber and Tom Ryder and Uh, Dave Wood and then later uh, Frank Kendrick. And um, so Coach Katie, you know, gave his assistants a lot of latitude in terms of being able to teach and coach. So I was able to get on the floor. And, um, you know, my specialty was, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, uh, because those are the coaches I studied, uh, all defensive coaches. And uh, while there was a variety of approaches and styles of, you know, employing defenses, at those respective programs that i spent time with um like you know different jazz right different you know flavors um i was you know always taking notes because i knew at some point i'd be a head coach and bringing those principles forward and developing my own philosophy because ultimately you got to be yourself you can learn from others emulate others uh, borrow some ideas uh, like a recipe here and there that you add into your own cookbook but it has to be your cookbook and uh Otherwise, you're not going to be comfortable and you've got to be comfortable in your own skin, you know, be true to yourself and uh, do the things you believe in. But I think humility and listening and learning and being open with a flexible mindset uh, is how you build your knowledge base. And uh, that in turn then helps in terms of achieving, in terms of, you know, aspiring to uh, to certain goals and then trying to pass that on to your players who carry it forward and hopefully do the same someday and passing it on uh, to the next generation. And uh, But I think at Purdue, my area of specialty, my responsibility was on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, obviously, there was some scouting, game preparation. Uh, Coach Katie expected us to get on the floor and be able to teach all the drills. Uh, he also gave us responsibility to go out and speak to donors and boosters. And he wanted us to also work with the media and uh, be involved, uh, kind of like gang tackling every aspect of the program. Uh, When someone came in for a visit, you know, you wanted to engage, even if you weren't the number one assistant in charge of recruiting, you expect a collective effort for everyone to engage with that recruit, that prospect and their family. So they have a better experience and are more likely to come to Purdue and help our cause in terms of competing in the Big Ten and trying to win championships. So that was helpful. And uh, interestingly, Jim Herrick was very similar in terms of latitude. Him and Coach Katie are dramatically different. In terms of you know their sideline demeanor and their overall philosophies, uh, but where they were similar was expecting the assistants uh, to learn every aspect of what it takes to be a head coach, and that closes the gap, cuts the tuition in half on the transition. It better prepares you uh, for that day when you do become a head coach.
0: That um, that reminds me a lot. I mean, just when you think about Purdue, just a coach paint because I remember. I mean. Every single one of my assistant coaches from my freshman year now are head coaches. You got Coach Shrewsbury at Penn State. You got Coach Owens at Miami of Ohio. You got Coach G, who's down at Mercer. So it's kind of similar to what Payne does. I mean, you see, True. given the guys' coach responsibility, you see them handing over a clipboard. When you're an assistant, does that empower you, or because because if I'm looking back, if I would have never, honestly, I don't know much about a Coach Katie, but. I would have never really saw, thought that way. If you look at the sideline demeanor and kind of the aggressiveness, did that empower you to kind of do more as an assistant when he would empower you in a sense? Definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, he is
1: very humble, you know, hardworking. Uh, he's intense, a fierce competitor, yeah. As, yeah. as intense as any coach in the history of college basketball. Yeah. And I rank him right at the top in terms of getting the most out of his teams. You know, there are other coaches, Pete Newell, uh, you know, also really maximized, you know, his personnel in terms of getting the most out of them. And that's really what coaching's about. Uh your, you know, personnel changes from year to year. And so you have to make adjustments. Uh, and I think Coach Katie's flexible mindset and his humility um is one of his true gifts. And he's got a great sense of humor. And humor and humility are related. Uh, You know, so he shows deference to others. Uh, He can laugh at himself. And I think that's one of his gifts and what makes him so real and appealing to others is, uh, you know, he's never too big for his britches. He, you know, he can uh, get a kick out of himself. He can laugh at his circumstances, even when, you know, the circumstances are such that, uh, you know, it's not what he would ideally want. You know, but, uh, you know, even after a tough loss, you know, he would grade us and then put us back, uh, recalibrate our mindset, put us back on track in terms of building confidence and making us believe uh, that we could still do special things that season. Uh, So he was sometimes at his best in the darkest moments. I thought, you know, his best coaching was after tough losses and uh, his resiliency was remarkable his bounce back i think that's maybe the greatest gift uh, that i took from him was his resiliency just that spirit uh, he wasn't going to be denied in pursuing goals and aspiring towards excellence uh, you know independent of the odds or the obstacles or the tough breaks uh that would come his way or our way as a program uh, he was hard charging and leading from the front uh, in terms of his example. And really it was that energy and passion, that will uh, that he had uh, that set him apart from others. Um, But yeah, so, you know, he expected us to pitch in. And so whether it was even uh, USA basketball, because he coached a lot of teams for our country and expecting our staff uh, to jump in. You know, he took me with him to Colorado Springs for the trials. And uh, that built my confidence because you're working with all the best players in the country. And uh, and he led those teams to gold medals. But so no doubt at a young age, you know, having a coach that believed in you and gave you responsibility and listened. You know, he listened to us in staff meetings. when We were putting together our practice plans when we were talking about what we might do based on matchups, you know, with an opponent and uh, things we can modify or tweak. And again, that uh, thinking creatively uh, to find a way to win a game, you know, thinking creatively uh, with a fresh and original outlook so that you stay ahead of the curve. And if you don't keep evolving uh, as a coach, as a program, uh, then eventually you get passed by. So uh, that's the wonderful thing about team sports. And basketball, in particular, is in its purest form. It's a metaphor for life. In other words, the things that you've learned by going to Purdue, and the things I learned by being an assistant at Purdue, uh, carry forward. Carry forward. Like those are attributes, traits, qualities, characteristics. You know, preparation, attention to detail, uh, being a good teammate. Um, you know, sustaining your intensity, being a great listener. Um, you know intensity and intelligence you need both passion but also purpose and so uh, those qualities that coach katie instilled in his staff members and his players um you know they allow you to have a sustainable career whether you're in basketball or some other industry
0: no i agree i 100 percent agree i've always tell um uh, always tell guys purdue I mean, Purdue prepared me to be a professional basketball player, but it prepared me to be a professional. Coach Paint would always say, be a professional at your role or be a professional at anything you do. Because like you said earlier, I mean, your high school having success, winning some state championships brought you more personal success. And I mean, like with the way you go about it and the way you go about your role and the way you go about carrying yourself, no matter what you're doing, always be a pro. And that's something I learned from Paint because I was able to go from basketball I mean, high major basketball to selling a sales career with Eli Lilly in the doctor's offices, and this is translated just from being professional and just being a pro at whatever I was going to put my foot in. So, you now everything you're saying, I feel like, I mean, the way you're describing Paint, I mean, I see, I just, I just did it. The way you're describing paint, it's like the same, it's like the same, the same way I could describe Coach Paint. It's the same exact things I learned at the at Purdue, like the, what you said about listening. Paint would always say, "Listening is a skill." He would always say, "You have to learn how to listen." He would always say, "Listening will take you further," and that was one of the reasons why I became a captain. Is because I just tried to do everything they would say. Because I, I, I just like if you were a defensive master, I suck at defense. And if there was a time where I didn't know what was going on, I'm just gonna stop and I'm gonna ask what's going on. I don't know, tell me. And it, it got to the point where they called me the worst defender, and I just listened to everything they said, and I became defensive player of the year the next year. So everything you're saying, I mean, 30 years later, is still true to my time at Purdue. And while you were while you were there, I'm just curious, you have any games that you remember or any IU moments that you remember from your time at Purdue, your three years? Boy,
1: you know, that first year we actually struggled.
0: Mm. And so
1: it was an opportunity to learn. because uh, Coach Katie was on a roll there with the Big Ten Championships. And then we had a season where, you know, things just didn't line up. We didn't have the cohesiveness. And so there wasn't the margin for error. You mentioned Troy Lewis, you know, Everett Stevens, Todd Mitchell, you know, Tony Jones, uh, Melvin McCants, you know, Kip Jones, Steve Scheffler. I mean, there was that, that team prior to my first year, it had a really good run. And then we still had, you know, Scheffler and Kip Jones and Melvin McCants and Tony Jones, but the big three had moved on. And so, uh, while, you know, the players that returned were important pieces in those championship seasons, they were more complementary pieces because Troy Todd and Everett, right. They really dominated, um, in terms of you know shots and scoring and having the ball in their hands and growing into being the leaders that coach kate expected them to be so that next year we had the complementary pieces that returned from those successful seasons and then we had a bunch of newcomers and the chemistry just didn't ever connect there just wasn't the flow that you need and you're in the big 10 strong conferences there is in the country and so you're playing with a razor thin margin for error so we ended up having a losing season. If I'm not mistaken. we might've been, you know, like one game below 500, didn't go to NIT, didn't go to an NCAA tournament, but that really led to, again, coach Katie doing his best work and also the leaders that came back the next year, we finished second place. And uh, there was a game at Michigan state in my second season. It was the last game of the regular season with the big 10 chip chip on the line. And uh, Steve Smith, um, uh, Kirk Manns, I think, also was up there at that point. trying to think if Dwayne Stevens was playing on those teams. But uh, Michigan State had a really strong team. And uh, we lost a heartbreaker up there. There were some calls down the stretch that didn't go our way. Coach Katie to this day still talks about those calls. I think Eddie Hightower had that game. And he never let Eddie Hightower forget it, saying that he owed us a Big Ten championship ring. (laughs) and uh, always reminding him, you know, you still owe me a Big Ten championship ring because you stole mine, you know. (laughs) Um, But uh, that was a really memorable game. And, you know, all the Indiana games, you know, in Bloomington and uh, at Mackey, Mackey was electric, always is, but in particular when Indiana comes in, as you know, uh, in my book, The Greatest Rivalry in College Basketball, and there's uh, there's North Carolina and Duke, but UCLA, USC, uh, but my book, for a number of reasons, Purdue is, Purdue IU is the most unique of all, Um, that's for another podcast down the line, we'll have that conversation, but, um, and winning in Bloomington probably is more rewarding, because it's so tough, and that's what's remarkable about this run that Matt Painter's had, he's the Hoosier Slayer, I mean, uh, maybe in the history of the rivalry, I don't know if anyone's ever done what Matt Painter's done in terms of the consecutive victories, and maybe if we go way, way back when the scores were eleven to seven, or you know, at the turn of the turn of the century or something. But, um, but, you know, this is really uh, a unique scenario, and it should be appreciated, and not taken for granted, because uh, you know, Purdue has just been uh, blitzing Indiana, and it really hasn't been a rivalry, because to be a rivalry, you know, you have to be competitive. And uh, for a long stretch year, that rivalry has not been competitive. And I think Coach Painter, he doesn't want to lose no. to IU, but he'd probably even like to see the rivalry get elevated back to where it was during the Gene Cady, Bobby Knight era, um, or even early in you know Coach Painter's tenure when it was more uh, competitive. But, uh, but that speaks to Matt's gifts as a coach mm-hmm. and uh, also recruiting. You know, he's kind of dominated uh, the recruiting you know, in terms of the landscape, uh, in Indiana and the Midwest. And that when you start sending guys, you know, to the NBA and you're winning championships and making runs in the tournament, all those things fuel the program uh, for greater success. And so Matt's got it rolling right now. And also Matt navigated through some tough seasons and very similar to coach Katie and Purdue was smart enough to stay with him and stay the course, because if you have a good fit, um, You may think the grass is greener, but it's an old be careful what you wish for. You run out the guy who's actually better positioned and knows the program and its history and the conference better than anyone that's out there as a hot candidate. And so you may sign a hot candidate, have a nice honeymoon at the press conference, uh, but then the work begins. And if you don't have someone like a Gene Cady or a Matt Painter and you've lost them or let them go, um, that can often come back to really haunt a program uh, for decades or more. And so I think, you know, Matt navigated that tough period masterfully. He was, you know, uh, open and flexible in terms of the adjustments he had to make, both in terms of his staff and recruiting. And that's what a great leader does, is he evaluates, assesses the situation, and makes those adjustments, uh, modifies from a strategic standpoint what he has to do and uh, that's like a CEO that's what really Matt is, but of a basketball program. And so infrastructure, personnel, staffing, all those things uh, and talent, let's face it, you gotta be able to sign good basketball players if you're gonna win games. The X's and O's are important, but it's the Jimmys and the Joes. If you look through the history of Purdue, uh, when they've been at their best, <laughs> they've had good players. And when we've struggled, uh, We didn't have the level of personnel, the margin for error, and then on top of it, the chemistry. Um, So Matt is a perfect balance of he understands strategy, X's and O's, adjustments, has a feel for the game, a feel for his personnel, a great motivator, and also makes the adjustments uh, both in-game and from game to game and from season to season because your roster is changing. and, um, And then also evaluating talent talent in terms of staff, what assistance to bring in and how they're going to work together because they have to have chemistry as well. And then also evaluating uh, players, prospects and, uh, and blending, right? Players that, you know, have NBA talent but then also getting those role players. I call it the tortoises and the hares. You need enough four, five-year players in the red shirt that give you continuity and stability and really sustain your culture, because they understand what's expected. But then you also got to recruit some guys can come in. Right now, and impact that may leave after a couple years, Uh, they may have a chance to go early. And that's a good thing. And so I think, you know, like a portfolio, you know, you want to blend and balance, uh, you know, from a financial standpoint, you know, you sit down with an investor, they always talk about balance, not putting, you know, only one putting all your money in, in one side of things from a financial standpoint. So uh, Matt's done that. Well, when you look at his rosters uh, in terms of players and his staff, and uh, he's, you know, on a trajectory to go to the hall of fame. And I think a couple of years ago, if they don't get the bad balance against Virginia, that could be a national championship team. So there already be one banner up there and it would, uh, you know, squash any of the ridiculous chatter about, you know, he, can't win the big one because he's won so many big ones it's crazy I've lost track of how many big ones he's won but people have that mindset that if you don't get to a final four you don't win at all then it's a bust right. and people forget you know that Jim Calhoun went years before he could win the big one and then once he punched through he went to you know four or five final fours and won three national titles Gary Williams they said couldn't win the big one and then in 2001 he goes to the final four in 2002 he wins it John Wooden didn't win a championship at UCLA until his 16th season. He was 53 years old Dang. before he won his first title. And then once he got that first one, it ended up leading to 10 out of 12 <laughs> and seven in a row and four undefeated seasons and 88 consecutive wins at one point, still a record on the men's basketball side. But people forget he was working at his craft. He started at Dayton, Kentucky as a high school you know, English teacher and coach. Then he was at South Bend Central High School as a coach and English teacher. Then he went to Indiana State when it was a teacher's college, Division II. They they weren't the Larry Bird Sycamores at that point, Uh, but he worked on his craft some more. He was also in the service, um, served our country in the Navy. And that obviously is an education in and of itself. And then he comes to UCLA in the late forties and he doesn't get that first championship till the mid sixties. And he retires in 1975 with his last of the 10 championships. Uh, but he went, you know, 15 years with very mediocre results. And, um, they stayed the course with him and it paid dividends with, with 10 out of 12, but, but he admits he was learning. He likes to kid. He'd say you know, Steve, I was a slow learner with the twinkle in his blue eyes he starts to see the grin. And he said, but once I figured it out, I was pretty good. <laughs> and, and it's the understatement, obviously, of the history of coaching. Right, um, right. and, and he, you know, he, he was tweaking and modifying the, the, the full court press, you know, was was an important weapon. Uh, the two two one press, and uh, his first championship was small ball. They didn't have anyone over six foot five on the roster, so nineteen, you know, 1964-65, They were doing what Golden State Warriors are doing, but they didn't have a three point line or a clock back then. Right. But through the press, um, they really took off. He wanted to play fast break basketball because Piggy Lambert, his mentor at Purdue hence uh, Lambert Fieldhouse. Piggy Lambert actually had a ball, you know, like there's Spalding and Wilson. Piggy Lambert was so big time, and he coached John Wooden, that uh, he had one of those balls that had the laces in it, almost like a football does, you know, know.
2: now. That's
1: how far back things uh, (laughs) were. Coach Wooden was there from 1928 to 32 at Purdue. I don't know if uh, Orville Redenbacher was his classmate or not, but uh, I know he – over Redbacher and other Boilermakers, you know, I mean, we, we got such a range, right. Putting guys on the moon, popcorn, popping, yes. uh, coach wooden with his championships and uh, coach Katie, now coach painter. Uh, but uh, so many great alums, you know, when you look uh, at the history of Purdue, but, um, but yeah, learning and growing is, is really important. And I think um, the schools that have stayed the course Calhoun Connecticut, Jim Bam at Syracuse, Shashevsky at Duke, Dean Smith and Roy Williams at North Carolina, Lute Olsen at Arizona, you know, the Heathcote passed the baton to Tom Izzo. Um, those runs are, you know, a result of the continuity. They're not turning over right. their coaching staff every couple of years. And just like musicians, you know, the longer they play together, right, the better the music, mm. the more you rehearse and practice together. Uh, then, you know, the performance is going to be elevated. That doesn't mean there aren't dips on occasion uh, because it's a competitive world. So teams are going to have a a bad stretch where the group just doesn't realize their potential or, you know, your assessment as a coach was off base, you know, in terms of who you bring in. And if you miss in this business and you're in the big 10 on one recruiting class, uh, that can cost you a season or two before you recover. Now, the transfer portals changed things a little bit where you can you know, change your roster uh, in, a, in a more you know, quick fashion right. uh, than past years because you've got kids coming in that don't even have to sit out to play right away. The graduate transfers, the COVID situations led to the transfer portal having 11 or 1,200 people in it uh, this year. So uh, that's probably been the biggest change. You know, way back early 80s, the shot clock was a revolutionary change. 87 the three-point line was a revolutionary change and i'd say right now the biggest change is the transfer portal the transfer market kind of the equivalent of free agency but in college athletics um, and how people respond to that take advantage of that uh, will go a long way to determining whether or not they continue to have success
0: what do you feel about the um, the, the, the portal because i mean like you said i never really thought about the shot clock not having not, the game, not having a shot clock before it did. So these moments in the game where things change, what do you, what do you see happening from the portal? What are your initial thoughts of it? Cause like you said, there are somewhere a thousand kids in the portal.
1: Yeah, I think number one, it's, it's not shocking, um, but it is surprising, you know, and the reason to me it's not shocking is we've seen that trend through the years in terms of, you Know people transferring more frequently, and I think it starts with you know high schools where you know you'll see you know athletes transfer more frequently because maybe they feel the program's not a good fit, you know, they've got issues with the coach, uh, or they're incentivized to go to another program, uh, maybe you know, a combination of factors. And also in the summertime, right, you'll see frequent changes, uh, the different shoe companies, the different AU programs, and someone will you know be with. Under Armour one year, and then they're with Nike, and then the next year they're with Adidas, and um, so you know, starting with youth basketball uh, and summertime AAU basketball and high school, uh, it's just more prevalent. And so I think people have become kind of numb, and it's just status quo that people are transferring uh, left and right, and so now it's carried over to college, where you know it might be you want to go play with a friend on the other side of the country. You know, and they're texting each other, keeping in touch with social media and they hang out in the summertime. And then it's like, man, you should come play for us, you know, and there was less of that. That was a really rare occasion when I got in the business in the 80s through the 90s, uh, even the you know, early 2000s. But in the last 10 years and these last couple of years, it's really gone to another level. It's transfers, you know, on steroids in, in terms of the frequency.
0: Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so in the last so – I came into Purdue around 2000, 2012 and since then, every year, like you said, the last 10 years. and the last few years, it's kind of amped. But I just was more curious to see kind of the thoughts about it because it is a big, big change, and it does give, like you just said, a point that I haven't heard anybody talk about. It gives the it gives the players the power to kind of recruit other players. So mm-hmm. it's kind of, It will be a big shift. And yeah, you know, I think – think- I I
1: think not to cut you off. I'm sorry. Finish that. No, you go ahead. ahead. Um, Cut you off in the baseline there. See, there's my, my quick feet. Um, So, you know, I think one of the elements that's come out of the transfer portal and something to consider is coaches have to check their whole card as coach katie used to like to say Mm. Uh, and i'm saying this as you know someone that coached for 20 plus years and so i'm including myself that we're at this critical intersection or juncture and you know numbers and analytics right are an indication of something and and finding out why and looking into that there are some like the things i just mentioned uh, but i also think that there's something to be said for coming at young people uh, in a different way, finding, you know, fresh and original ways to connect, to engage, to show interest. And I mean, authentically, not just, okay, come over to the house with the team and we're going to, you know, have some burgers and you get to watch an NFL game or two and think that's it. You kind of check that box that you're really engaged and showing interest and, um, and have an idea of what's going on with your players in terms of their struggles, you know, mental health issues, uh, challenges at home. Uh, the number of things uh, that a young person is trying to balance as a student athlete is academic load, the pressure to perform at a high level. And so um, I think more one-on-one time, just like, you know, when parents drop in and they get that quality time with one of their children for a full day, uh, uninterrupted, unfettered, and uh, not distracted by the phone or work, uh, but fully engaged. And doing more of that, you know, the entire coaching staff with young people doesn't guarantee that that some won't still transfer, but I think you would see a difference. um, And I know at St. John's, my second tour of duty and coaching, you know, I made a conscious effort uh, to spend time with my players away from campus, away from the locker room, you know, because when you're traveling with your team, there's some pockets that I think those are valuable too to connect with your players, you know, on a layover in terms of a connecting flight or on the bus rides or, you know, at the various stops when you're getting a bite to eat. But spending that time. Away from campus, away from the locker room, away from your office, with players. And uh, for me, you know, if it was spring or summer, I'd I'd meet him in Central Park. We'd go for long walks in Central Park. Yeah. Or if it was during the year, we'd get together. And you know, I was living in the Village. We'd drop in and listen to some jazz at a, a, a cool little jazz spot. Or there might be a, an exhibit in Soho, or a try backup uh, interesting art exhibit, or an exhibit at the Whitney, and uh, or having them come over. And uh, spend the night, you know, or spend the weekend. And so, uh, that I found was a real difference maker. And it doesn't mean you still didn't have challenges with players. Um, you know, I think we had maybe three transfers in the five years, UCLA, I might've had two or three. And again, it was different eras, but I think I've had five or six transfers in my entire coaching career. And I think one of the reasons is, you know, I did my best wasn't perfect to really engage and there's are still players that aren't happy uh, There's are still players that i wasn't able to reach or bring forth their full potential or get them close to their full potential no one ever reaches their full potential but the, the the idea is let's get individual players and then the group collectively closer to the full potential or full expression of their potential and that's really what i was after and i knew the winning would be a result of that approach you know we still got to organize them, you still got to discipline them, you still got to condition them and um, you know you still got to be well prepared you still got you know from a crisis management standpoint be flexible and be ready to put out fires and, yeah. and uh, you know there's all the complexities that come with being a head coach but I do think that's an aspect that right now coaches throughout the country need to really examine I'll give you an example John Wooden in the springtime at ucla would always audit a psychology class and cuz we had you know great professors right in every subject you know history philosophy english but also psychology and he wanted to audit those classes sit in on psychology classes because he knew that he was getting older and by being engaged in a class where there's 18 to 22 year olds that are taking a psychology class and these psychologists or psychology teachers, uh, who were experts really in the realm of people and motivation and, you know, uh, what works, you know, what are the trends and coach Wooden was getting older, but he was continuing to work with the same age group. And so to bridge that gap, he made strategic hires in terms of his assistant coaches and former players that then came under his tutelage as assistant coaches. That was one way to bridge the gap. And the other was staying on top of psychology. And that's pretty forward thinking, progressive thinking for a guy that was born in 1910 in Indiana. But I think it's also why he, you know, was successful coaching guys that came back from Normandy and Iwo Jima in World War II, but also coached during Vietnam and he coached during the drug experimentation and the sexual revolution, um, civil, you know, civil rights. I mean, he was uh, coaching during really interesting times in our country, and yet he was so old fashioned with his virtues and values that he believed in uh, from his Midwest upbringing and uh, his faith. And, uh, but I also think, you know, his flexibility, we talked about that earlier with coach Katie and coach Painter, that you've got to be open and have a flexible mindset so you can adapt and adjust to the changing times as you get older, but continue to coach younger people. And I think right now, you know, the coaches throughout the country would be wise to take John Wooden's lead and you know, start to not only rely on this, you know, school counselors and psychologists. That's important. Take advantage of those resources because they're expert in that area, but also do a deep dive yourself on what's going on in our culture and with young people. And uh, just you know, be interested in them, but also in the psychology. What are the, the best methods, right, the best techniques? to be able to establish rapport and establish trust. And again, back to authenticity. It, it can't just be, you know, having them over uh, for a picnic, you know, a barbecue uh, in the backyard. And then you think you've checked that for another six months. Yeah. It's It's gotta be a constant. And I'm not saying it's easy because as a head coach, you're juggling so many aspects. Uh, there are so many demands on your time. But I think we sometimes get away from remembering the most important aspect is the student athletes that you're responsible for. And I think it happens with parents, right? Sometimes we forget our children are the most important aspect. Um, and, and we lose you know, that frequency, that, uh, that line of communication. And um, so I think that would not eliminate transfers, but I think it would diminish the numbers that we're seeing. Uh, if, if, and that's assistant coaches too. It's the entire program, operations, people, video coordinators, your trainers. I mean, there's gotta be complete buy-in. And uh, so at, athletic programs should probably be investing money, you know, whether it's having, you know, experts come in and address coaches, you know, there's the women's side, there's the men's side, right? There's all these different things that are going on. And, um, I think that, is really what I feel most strongly about when it comes to that subject that we're speaking about here on the transfer portal.
0: No, I agree. I 100% wholeheartedly agree. And I think that's the reason why, like you see guys, like, I mean, cause one thing I always appreciate that Pink started to do, like you said, we had, I was a part of those rookie that we had. So after that, I mean, I'm mean, bringing in a guy We take personality tests and just try to figure out each per, like he's, he would always say, each person is different. I have to coach each person mm-hmm. different. He'd always say, I can't coach Rayfield the same way I coach A.J. Hammonds. Mm-hmm. I need to know how to talk to him differently. They were raised differently. So, you know what I mean? So, paint, it was always up on that type of stuff, what you're saying. I think that's one of the reasons, I mean, he's having continued success even with younger guys. So I mean, you think about kind of the same thing you're talking about. We're from going from coaching with Carl Landry and those dudes and now with Carson Edwards and this group these these last few groups so I mean it's just being able to go with the kids and go with the flow not fall into himself because I remember one thing Paint would always say was I'm not in the business of coaching I'm in the business of people uh-huh. he would always get to know his players he always I, always I mean even after my sophomore year I mean just being transparent my sophomore year, we come last place in the Big Ten. I think I'm averaging 17, 18 minutes a game. I was playing more my freshman year than I was my sophomore year, maybe just by a little bit, but it felt that way. But mm-hmm. I mean, I just didn't have a good year. I wanted to transfer. I mean, just uh-huh. the kid in me wanted to transfer, but I liked I liked the staff. I liked Coach Owens. Uh-huh. I knew Coach Owen since I was 14, 15 years old, I knew he cared. You know what I mean? It wasn't that I wanted to transfer. I wasn't I only stayed and didn't transfer because of what you're saying. I knew they cared about me. I knew that at the end of the day, it wasn't that they didn't like me. It's not that they didn't want me there. I just, honestly, I just wasn't good enough on defense. So, right. when you, but when you have those type of coaches that, like a coach Owens that will show you that he cares about you at the end of the year, you're not thinking, oh, they don't like me. I have to leave. So it's all about every, everything you are saying. I thought that's like, to this day, I just talked to coach Owens yesterday. So it's one of those things where, Mm-hmm. At Purdue, I felt invested in, especially like not just from Coach Paint, but from Coach Owens, Coach Brantley, it, the list goes on, Coach G, I mean, Coach Shrewsbury, Coach Shrewsbury coached me my freshman year at Purdue, and after that, he went with Brad Stevens to the Celtics my sophomore year, but when I graduated from Purdue, he was still with the Celtics, and I moved to Atlanta, I started working for Eli Lilly, mm-hmm. I reached out to Coach Shrewsbury, I see the Celtics are coming in town, it's one text message, Coach Shrewsbury leaves me my fiance tickets, and we have a good night at the game. So it's one of those things where at Purdue, I always felt as though whether you're playing or whether you're not, like my sophomore year to my junior year, the love and how the coaches feel about you doesn't change. And that's mm-hmm. the reason I didn't. We had guys transfer out. I can't speak for them. That's one of the reasons I didn't transfer. So yeah, well, that was um. That's that's crazy that you say that because that's what I felt. That's what that's how I felt. Purdue started to move when he, when we started to think of Chad Brown. I think. We started to do those per the disc, disc test. I think they were called. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know I just have um, a few more questions for you. Just going off of Twitter. I, I, I threw it out there for, for uh, some of the Twitter fans and whatnot. I had a good sure. to come back. From your commentating career, because I know you started commentating 2003-ish, what's the best game you've, co- you've seen live or the best performance by a player you've seen live? Wow. Well,
1: as a coach my assistant years at ucla uh jason kidd was in our conference at cal berkeley and i'd say jason kidd in terms of just you know sitting on the bench courtside watching him go up and down the floor and the things he was doing to influence the game in a positive manner for the cal bears both offensively and defensively were just off the hinges it was you knew that you were watching a Hall of Fame basketball player. And he was like a one-man press in terms of just ball hawking. And then he also was like a defensive back in terms of the way he would bait someone to, you know, throw a pass because he knew he could close down on it so quickly and just feast on people's passes if they weren't really sharp and didn't have velocity on them or if they were telegraphed. and uh, But he would almost give someone some room so presented the illusion that they were open and then he knew he could close down and steal the ball and then bring it the other way you know and either finish himself or drop a precise dime because it was surgery when jason kidd was out there with the ball in his hands and he could just cut you up Uh, ray allen uh, in the ncaa tournament 1995 we played uconn in the oakland coliseum in the elite eight to go to the final four and it was just a shootout. Kevin Olley was the point guard. Ray Allen was at the wing. Donnie Marshall was a four-man. Deron Sheffer, I think, was lock and load and bombing threes. Uh, they were a really good team and played at pace. They were the first team that wanted to run with us because they thought they could outrun us. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim Calhoun even said it that week, like, hey, we're not slowing it down. They haven't seen the way we run, you know. And that's why I love about Coach Calhoun. He's got so much swag and confidence because so often – Coaches will sandbag and do the Lou Holtz. And, you know, well, we're not that good. We don't have the talent, you know, to play against these teams, but our system is going to try and carry us through. Calhoun was just saying, like, hey, we're badass. You know, we're going to run them out of the gym. <laughs> and of course, that inspired us, bullets and board material. Now it's on, you know. Oh. And it was, it was a shootout. I forget the final score, but it was, you know, high octane, one of the more entertaining. You know, we had Tyus Edney and Edo Ban and Toby Bailey and J.R. Henderson. And, George Zedek, Cameron Dollar. This game was just played at a breakneck pace. And Ray Allen was another player who you were just like, what? The shots that he was making. Because we had the lead, but they kept coming. And we ended up winning, going to the Final Four, winning the national championship. But in that game, you know, we think that we had a comfortable lead. And then Ray Allen would just start doing crazy things and making shots. And we were well prepared, you know, on all his catches. We were going to show him a crowd. You know, we were going to hard hedge or blitz and double on ball screens. And we had, you know, different coverages ready for him. And, you know, I'll never forget because he had a run where he made like, you know, eight straight points, hit a shot right in front of our bench where his heels, you know, of his sneakers were, you know, almost on the sideline out of bounds, you know, right in front of our bench. And it's fully contested. I think Charles O'Bannon or someone had a high hand, you know, on the closeout and, you know, nothing but net. And, you know, Coach Harris calls a timeout and, you know, might have been a 30. And he's, you know, jumping our guys about, you know, guard him, guard him, you know. <laughs> so it was funny. I think it was Charles Obeas And coach. He goes, those are crazy shots. I'm guarding him. Like, you know, and then we, the players broke to the timeout. It was Lorenzo Romar, Mark Godfrey, and myself who were the assistants. And Lorenzo said to coach, like, Coach, he's not lying. Those are crazy shots. And Lorenzo played the NBA, so, you know, he had even more credibility. Right. And right. Uh, played against the best, you know, play, played under Don Nelson, played for the Warriors and other teams. And he had scored, I think, in an athlete's in action game exhibition against Michigan, the Fab, you know, four, I think, with the Fab Five. I think Lorenzo dropped 45 or 50 right. on the Fab Five back in the day. So he had credibility. Yes. When when he was like, Coach, no, those are crazy shots. Like we are guarding him. That's as good as you can guard. Period. You know.
2: Dang. Now we
1: can try and maybe cut down his catch. You know, uh, try you know play keep away or do box and one or something. But in terms of our man coverages, like that's as good as it gets. He just making shots. You know. So I'd say Jason Kidd, Ray Allen, um, man, as a broadcaster, you know, there's players that I just really admired like Jalen Brunson. Hmm. You know, at Villanova in their run, I covered his teams and his leadership. I think, you know, he's as intelligent and crafty. What's interesting is he's not a traditional, you know, great athlete. Right, right. But he's a great athlete in terms of understanding angles, efficiency of movement, you know, purposeful use of the bounce, his vision, and kind of making up for his lack of great athleticism right and so you know I'd say uh, Jalen Brunson you know of late comes to mind really Villanova's teams I've had great admiration for obviously you know I love Purdue Uh, Wisconsin under Bo Ryan you know that run I had a chance to cover during those 77 years from 2003 to 2010 Brent Musburger and I and Aaron Andrews our sideline reporter also I worked with Dave O'Brien had a good run with him but we covered the Big Ten for those seven years and, uh, you know, Michigan State, we know Tom Izzo. I see him as like a great CEO. Yeah. You know, Krzyzewski is a great CEO. Roy Williams are great CEOs. Um, but Bo Ryan had the CEO skills, but uh, his results in terms of the consistency, and it's interesting, Matt had as much success against Bo Ryan as anybody yep. uh, during that run, which speaks to, to Matt's uh, coaching ability. But I'd say, you know, Bo Ryan... During those seven years, I may have admired what he did with that program. Then, of course, he had the final fours later. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I know Coach Katie sometimes get mad at me because he thought I was giving too much love to Bo Ryan. But he's <laughs> like, he's not that good. <laughs> you know, I was like, Coach, he's pretty good. I was like, I'm telling you, Sid, I know I, I've got the biased, you know, <laughs> prejudice perspective. I love Purdue, but I also got to keep it real as right. an analyst. That's what I'm getting paid to do. And I'll give you all the love, you know, when it's deserved. I said, but, you know, if Purdue's not playing well, you know, I can't crush my credibility by giving them so much hype and so much love when the reality is really Bo Ryan during that period of time, I thought got as much out of his personnel. Uh, when We talk about maximizing talent. Going back earlier, you asked other guys. I said, Pete Newell, coach that maximizes personnel or talent. Pete Carrill at Princeton. Uh, I think Coach Katie, Bo Ryan. There was a guy way back, Charlie Spoonhauer, who, I felt was one of those coaches as well. And, um, and there are, there are others. I think Dick Dick and Tony Bennett, both are in that category. What, what Tony Bennett's done of late at Virginia is also ridiculous and winning ACC championships, regular season, postseason. He makes it look like it's easy to win 30 games. I mean, every year it seems like he's between 27 and 30 wins, if not more and the national championship. And probably could have had a second. They had some heartbreakers too. Big lead against Syracuse in the NCAA tournament. I think that team could have won a championship. And and Virginia imposes their preferred tempo as well as any team in the country. And that's a key to winning. Yeah. And uh, whether it's imposing a fast tempo, you know, uh, Virginia's happens to be more deliberate, and precise. And Villanova's done that. You know, they, you know, they're always playing at as slow a tempo yet it's so efficient that doesn't seem like they're playing slow but if you look at the numbers you know they're 338 or 339 in division 1 basketball and the tempo metrics or analytics yeah. and that's really slow yeah. but what it is is they're just working for a good shot along the way hoping to get fouled they're the type of team that never swings at bad pitches so they're not beating themselves that means not taking bad shots yeah. they very rarely get penalized like a great football team that doesn't get penalties Uh, They, you know, they don't reach, they don't lunge, they don't gamble. So teams, you know, rarely get to the double bonus against them. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're rarely in a situation where they've got a lot of foul trouble because they're so disciplined with their defense. We always think about discipline and shot selection, but there's also discipline in the defense, right? Moving the feet, not lunging, not gambling, be in position, play defense before your man gets the ball because then you're less foul prone, right? Right. And if your man doesn't get the ball, you don't have to worry about a foul to begin with. So. And Villanova does that, um, I think, as well as anybody in the country. Um, and again, you know, once you start talking about coaches and teams and programs, you know, there, there are a lot of great programs. In this NCAA tournament, we yeah. saw some really impressive runs by teams like Oregon State. that was unexpected. UCLA, uh, my old school, uh, had a great run to the Final Four, uh, knocking out Michigan State. In a game they were trailing by 11. So, um, But anyway, I digress. Let's get back to your questions. Sorry.
0: Oh no, that was that was perfect. I mean, no, that was um that was really, really I mean, that was what I was asking for. I mean, that was I mean, right. I mean, for all the players you named, I mean, all the players that I mean, those are icons. So like I always say, I mean, for you what you've seen, I mean, I've able to come in and coaching so early, it allowed you to start seeing the game through a different lens. And for you had this experience the last, I mean, forty years. I mean, yeah.
1: and Glenn Robinson's in that mix too. Big oh, yeah. dog. Big dog. You know, we yeah. left. So I went to UCLA, I think the next year Glenn came in, or maybe it'd been that season, Konzo, Conzo, right, in that mix too. Uh, because that they overlapped a couple of years with Waddell and Painter and yep. Link Darner and, and uh you know some of the other boilermakers of that era. But Glenn Robinson's run, you know, before the back injury uh, that he had against Duke. I think he got the night before the Duke game, he got a back injury through some infamous, you know, wrestling match or something up in their hotel room. Yep. Uh, 18 to 22 year olds, right? Just, uh, you never know. They keep you on your toes, but Glenn Robinson, I mean, I remember I was UCLA and I'd go to a sports bar to watch the Purdue games on satellite. Um, and it was solely to see, glenn perform i mean he was that entertaining and obviously mackie was rocking during those years but i mean even i remember him going on the road at wisconsin i think they pulled off a really tough game My, michael finley might have been at um at wisconsin Stu jackson might have been the coach maybe it was stan van gundy but but anyway um i mean big dog you know, and that, to me, the, the golden era, I know this year the Big Ten had the deepest conference in the country in terms of nine bids to the NCAA tournament, but I still think the greatest years were like late 80s uh, through, let's say, maybe late 90s, and definitely through the mid 90s. You know, when Michigan uh, wins the championship with Glenn Rice and Neil Robinson and Lloyd Vaught, you know, Illinois had that uh, great team with, you know, Bardo and, and, uh, Liberty and, uh, company, uh, I think Hamilton was on that team too, but, uh, those, you know, Tom Davis has had some Iowa teams who were off the hinges. And I think those were the golden years, you know, uh, Bill Foster was at Northwestern coach, Katie, at Purdue, Tom Davis at Iowa, Clem Haskins at Minnesota, Bobby Knight at Indiana, Judd Heathcote at Michigan State, Tom Davis at Iowa. I think I mentioned him. Oh, Bill Frieder was at Michigan. uh, Later, um, Steve Fisher took over. But I mean, as, as an apprentice, as an aspiring coach, being on staff, preparing to play those teams, and then watching the chess match between the head coaches, between the staffs, and seeing the talent that was on the floor. I mean, it was crazy. And then it continued through the early 90s and with Glenn and Conzo's run um, at Purdue and the three-peat. I think they won three Big Ten championships in a row. And that's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about Coach Katie being deserving of Naismith Hall of Fame induction is, you know, he didn't accumulate a lot of wins against, you know, poor competition. Right. He was picking up those Big Ten wins during the golden years of the conference. He was going against Lute Olson. When Lou Olson was at Iowa before Tom Davis took over at Iowa. I mean, he was facing hall of fame coaches and, uh, handing it to him. I mean, let's face it. Coach Katie was dominating uh, during those years. And so I'm like, wait, how are all those guys in the hall of fame, but not coach Katie, right? Coach Katie's got the only winning record uh, against Bobby Knight in terms of other big 10 coaches that had, you know, enough games to qualify for that category. Um, so when you look at what he did at every step, high school basketball, he dominated, JC basketball, he dominated, uh, you know, West Kentucky dominated, Purdue he dominated, then assistant with the Raptors and his contributions to the NBA, USA basketball and the gold medals and the contributions to USA basketball, uh, his time with me for five years at St. John's, giving back to the game and kids, uh, his time as an analyst the Big Ten Network, it's like, are you kidding me? This Guy's not in the hall of fame and nothing against other people that are, yeah. but you know, if you look at the numbers, because some people say, Well, he didn't go to the final four, but there's other guys that are in deserve it of being in. John Chaney's one, he deserves to be in, no doubt. But John Chaney is really the black coach, Katie. Mm. You know, he was a division two coach, uh, he was a high school coach, he dominated those levels, won a national championship, division two at Chaney State, and then he had a dominant run at temple and he was an ambassador and a statesman for the game and that's why we love him. his authenticity his passion uh coaching life and preparing young people for life and that's why his players have such reverence for him is they know uh, that his love was authentic and real And that's why john cheney's in and it's the same thing with coach katie i'm like okay i know coach didn't play or coach in the east coast he's a midwest guy uh, but he did coach as an assistant at st john's you know so he needs to be in the hall of fame while he's still with us. The other thing I don't understand is why people wait. And then, you know, the coaching giant passes away and then they have a tribute. They inducted him into the hall of fame. Why not, you know, allow that coach who earned an induction in the hall of fame, be able to celebrate it with his family's his extended family and to really, you know, be able to get his fair due you know, is deserve it due as a, as a legendary coach. And uh, so, uh, but going back to those years, in the big 10, I think that's one of the strongest elements to building the argument for coach Katie Bean in the hall of fame. Look at this, you know, six big 10 championships with seven big 10 coach of the year, six national coach of the year awards, six. I mean, some guys get one, national coach of the year award in their entire career this guy got six <laughs> I mean, yeah really is
0: yeah he's not in that that's so yeah we definitely um no i'm glad i didn't know that i didn't even know he wasn't in the hall of fame i would have thought i would have just easily thought he was in i didn't have right idea so no that's definitely because i saw I, no I, I think that should be a big push honestly so i definitely uh um, want that want that narrative to be hashtag something. it yeah yeah yeah, yeah induct, induct coach katie <laughs> yeah, because he should, like you said, especially while he's with us, while he's kicking healthy. Especially, now, I mean, you see Coach Katie on like his Facebook fan page; he's having fun, so it's like he's having a good time. So it's like it's definitely, like you said, well deserving. But because everything I've learned from you today, learning about Coach Katie, it's still lasting at Purdue now. I mean, Coach Paint definitely is like, like I like how you call it the CEO. Coach Payne is running his ship; it's how Coach Paint wants it. But coach paint is a branch off of that tree. You know what I mean? So definitely it's one of those things where I I, I, I don't see why he's not in. I I couldn't phantom the reason. But no, yeah, yeah coach. Um coach one, and just one last thing about just sure. this weekend is the Bill Hensley Memorial running slam. I know I just wanted to mention that because I know we both have a connection there with the Hensley family. And just kind of just through mentorship, I know you had some connection with Bill. I had some connection with Bill and Jr and Todd, the, the sons. This is kind of, kind of when I heard that just about Todd when you used to go to your camps and whatnot, it just kind of really brought things full circle to me and really kind of showed me how important mentorship is because you never know you can mentor one person or have influence on one person and then years later you have influence on another person and then those people meet up, so that um that was one of those moments for me realizing that. But I appreciate I appreciate everything you've done with basketball. I mean everything that you've been through with basketball from John Wooden to coach Katie, to coach Knight, uh, to obviously your own career, to commentating the things you've seen, the players you've watched. I mean, you didn't even touch on the players you touched. I mean, Matt Barnes, I mean, different guys has come through your system. Wow. So it's one of those things where, I mean, even going to St. John's and it's just, that's just beautiful. Going to St. John's and bringing coach Katie. I mean, having coach Katie come along with you as an, I mean, as a ambassador program or just uh I can't think of his, the, the Yeah, he
1: was he was like we called him our basketball Buddha, yeah. our uh, our Mr. Miyagi and uh, our Oracle, you know, and he was someone that could help coach the coaches, you know. Yeah. Um, and for me, you know, every game sitting on the bench, he was to my left. And that was my first boss starting 33 years ago. And so there's a comfort level of having, you know, the equivalent of your father or grandfather of basketball. And then on my right was the equivalent of my first born uh, Rico Hines was my first recruit at UCLA. Uh, we signed him out of St. John's prospect hall. And I think it was Frederick, Maryland, if I'm not mistaken. And so Rico is my first recruit. And then he was my first hire uh, after coach Katie. Um, okay. Cause coach Katie was like special assistant, you know, and Rico was my, my first sign. So I had, you know firstborn and my first boss and you know being flanked by them uh because i was returning after being away from coaching and even though i was had the best seat in the house as a broadcaster um you know it's like anything else you're sharpening the axe as you go yep. and um we were fortunate that that first year we kind of captured lightning in a bottle and we uh and making the ncaa tournament i think you know beating a lot of top 25 teams and top 10 teams and it was a kind of a magical year because we inherited a group of seniors from norm roberts but they hadn't you know reached their full potential yet right. and so we kind of saw our job was to take the baton from coach roberts and you know finish the job cross the finish line and get this group of seniors to an ncaa tournament because uh, they hadn't had a winning record in big east play yet and uh And it it came faster than we thought. But then we lost all 12 of those seniors and we had to start fresh. It was almost like an expansion program, unprecedented in division one basketball at that level. At least in my experience, I've never seen a situation where in year two, you don't have a single player with a minute of division one basketball. We had one and that was Malik Stith, who transferred at semester. Um, But every other, and it was a good group, you know, Maurice Harkless and D'Angelo Harrison, Phil Green and Dominic Pointer, and uh, Amir Garrett, who's now pitching with the Cincinnati Reds, Chakars with the Indiana Pacers, yeah. and uh, Mo Harkless is with Sacramento Kings. So our first recruiting class was third in the country behind Duke and Kentucky. Right. And, uh, but we didn't have a single minute division one experience returning, except from league stiff who transferred. Right. And so we, you know, Had to start over. And that second year is the year I had cancer. So I missed a full year uh, with cancer recovery at home. Then we came back, get 17 wins, go eight and 10 in the old Big East. This is when Notre Dame, Pittsburgh, Yukon, Syracuse, West Virginia, it wasn't the realigned Big East that we have now. And then uh, our fourth year, we went 20 games. And then when those guys were seniors, we won 21 games and went back to the NCAA tournament but we had a new president and father Harrington had hired me to have been at St. John's for like 25 years. He uh, gets pushed out. New president comes in and he's enamored, understandably with Chris Mullen, who's coaching giant. I grew up watching Chris Mullen as a golden state warriors fan hall of fame player. Um, so they end up making the change, hoping that could lead to final fours or national titles. And, uh, Now Mike Anderson's there trying to get it going. They made a little bit of progress this past year. But, you know, seniors are so important and experience, right? And it's not just seniors. It has to be seniors that can play. Right. You know, Coach Wooden used to say, the worst thing you can have is experienced players that can't play. (laughs) He goes, you know, I'd rather have, that's what Coach Wood said. He goes, I'd rather have young players that can play in other words young players with talent and gifts is better than older players that don't have talent or gifts and that's back to a little bit of coach wooden's common sense yeah. that yes the x's and o's are important but it's the jimmies and the joes they're actually going up and down the floor and helping you get stops and then working offensively to get good shots and hustling in between which is you know transition offense and transition defense get your special situations obviously and late clock situations and your out of bounds plays, and you know, sprinkle in some changing defenses, but pretty much right. It's trying to get a good shot on offense and that helps set your defense. So you can get back and not let them get good shots when you play defense and, uh, and then hustle in between, you know, try and get a fast break at that end and take their fast breaks away at the other end. And then again, get organized for some out of bounds plays. And that's really when you simplify things, what basketball comes down to, we sometimes make it sound like it's rocket science. Uh, It is, it's challenging to be proficient and be efficient and be consistent in playing the game the right way, but the objectives are not that complicated in terms of what we're trying to do. You know, sometimes as coaches, we mess it up. Sometimes players, because of their experience uh, and not having the perspective, screw it up. And sometimes both happens. Players and coaches are screwing it up. That's when really you're going to have a tough season. (laughs) That's, that's, that's the type of season that costs you your job. percent. (laughs) <laughs> That's funny. Any? do you have any of those questions from uh your uh, viewers that they sent in
0: i asked i asked two of okay. them um, okay good I, those, those yeah i asked the yeah two of them the, the um, best player you've seen the best performance um perfect the, the purdue game but yeah i think all, i think all of that is good coach um good i appreciate the time coach i appreciate everything you've given the basketball just i mean even outside of coaching, I know you used to run camps and stuff like that. So everything you've given to basketball, everything—I mean, like you said—you fought to be where you are. I mean, even through health situations and health issues. I—I I mean, I'm a big fan. I've been a big fan. I appreciate you joining us today. I know a lot of um, a lot of Purdue fans, a lot of just basketball fans can learn a lot. Just not just about Purdue from this episode, but just about basketball and just the like la- the law of the land. Cause given it, I mean, given it as real as you just gave it, there's no, no other way you could do, but learn from this episode. So coach, I appreciate it.
1: Ray, thank you for starters, for those uh, kind words, or I guess for in closing, I want to thank you for those kind words. And um, I enjoy, you know, the banter the conversation with you. Uh, you've got a gift in terms of your natural authenticity. We talked about that at other points today. And uh, authenticity, being genuine, is uh, a gift. And you talked about, you know, listening being a gift, but authenticity and being genuine and being other-directed, being interested, uh, which I think is something else that's really important. It's the equivalent of being curious, yeah. uh, being interested, and never losing that kind of childlike curiosity, uh, you know, as you go through life, and you're exhibiting that. Uh, so I really enjoy your natural, genuine way, and then also back to that, you know, event coming up, uh, the Hensley family is really extended family for me. And, uh, Jr went to IU, but the majority, you know, of the family, they're Boilermakers and grew up Purdue fans. Uh, Jr kind of broke from the tribe by going to IU. And of course, Todd would have come to Purdue, but I, you know, he played basketball, had opportunities, I think was a Florida international.
2: Yeah. I he think he so.
1: played I think he played in Florida somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, but, uh, but they're all basketball. As you know, you know, Jr success as an agent in basketball and Todd with the camps, with the training and uh, his love of the game, you know, is just a basketball Jones, you know, he loves it. And the father was the same way, right. Successful in business as a banker. And uh, the father was a game changer for me uh, because He met me, I think, at a Purdue coaches clinic and one of the situations we talk about where Coach Katie would give his assistants latitude or freedom to get on the floor and teach. And uh, that's how I met Coach Herrick was in Colorado Springs when I was leading the defensive drills, footwork, stance, all the things, you know, you know, dig hand, uh, fire feet, taking charges, diving on the floor. And Coach Herrick was there. Tracy Murray and Trevor Wilson, if I'm not mistaken, were at the trials and that led to meeting Coach Katie and played a part when you add the John Wooden Purdue piece, and it's why I ended up at UCLA for twelve years. But I met Bill Hensley at the defensive clinic. He comes up after we exchange numbers. He ends up flying me, you know, up to his clinic and and uh, working with his his AAU team. And uh, so, and that led to meeting Coach Sims. We were talking earlier about uh, Ray Sims, who was who's coaching there at the time, and met Jr. and Todd, and then of course, the father passed way too young, as you know. Uh, rest in peace, Bill Hensley. But uh, continued, you know, to stay in touch and and uh, have been friends and family uh, with Bill's wife and um, and Jr. and Todd. So I'm glad that Bill Hensley's legacy is carrying on. You know, through basketball, it's so appropriate. But uh, he actually uh, co-signed on a bank note for maybe $2,500 or $5,000 because I didn't have any dough or credit to speak of uh, at my age. And um, that allowed me to go to UCLA. Um, So, you know, he was was adamant because I knew UCLA starting out as a volunteer assistant, entry-level assistant. And the cost of living in LA was dramatically more than the cost of living in Lafayette, West Lafayette. But Bill's like, look, you've got an opportunity to go, you know, work at UCLA. You can't turn that down. And I said, well, I just can't afford it. You know? And he said, okay. He goes, we'll take care of that. I think it was Wabash union or, you know, Wabash bank um, that I came up, signed the papers on. And then I was able The first year I became a paid assistant, I was able to pay that off. But that never, my run at UCLA never happens without Bill Hensley co-signing on that bank note. You know, it's basically, back then they called it bank notes, I guess it's equivalent of a loan, you know, Uh, because my parents were educators, they raised six kids, they didn't have the the dough to come out of pocket for me either, you know, so, and also I was fortunate to have a boss and coach Katie that um, understood that, hey, you got an opportunity to go back west, you know, we'll bring you back later when there's some movement on the staff, but then by the time the movement happened, I was already head coach at UCLA. And so uh, Bill really plays a pivotal role uh, in my complete career journey or trajectory or path. And so forever indebted uh, to that family. And that's, you know, I would tell my players, you just never know where a guardian angel, uh, where a gift will reveal, you know, so do the right thing you know, treat people with respect, add value, and, um, you know, all the important, have, you know, be interested, have compassion, you know, and uh, we learn those as we go, you know, we sharpen those sensibilities, right, through life experience, so it's natural, you know, as an 18-year-old or 21-year-old to not possess all those qualities, but you can start to nudge young people towards those, again, going back to sport, and sport providing this ideal platform, to instill these really important traits, characteristics, qualities that uh, will carry you past, you know, your playing career oh, exactly. and allow you to be, allow you to be successful and achieve. And uh, so I would tell our players, you know, you never know who's watching and you want to do it the right thing, because on principle, that's what you should do. But there are these kind of practical, unexpected gifts Uh, that reveal and also help, you know, because you're doing the right thing and uh, not always, it doesn't always work out. It may not be immediate, but long haul, uh, it works out like the effort you're putting in to this podcast. Right. And so it's just going to continue to grow and be successful uh, because you're doing the right things. You're building a foundation like you do in a good basketball program. And you have to do that right in your life. We all do. And, uh, and stay true to that. Sustain it. Uh, easier said than done, but that's the idea.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. And I mean, that—that that, for what I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, what Bill was able to do for you, uh, like you said, maybe you don't end up at UCLA without without that happening. I don't know if I end up at high major AAU basketball, high major high level basketball. Period. If I don't get the opportunity from Bill to bring me to speed I think I'm in sixth sixth grade or something. And i'm playing with my community team on my side of town one of the better players bill gives me the opportunity to come out there with with them and those guys before he passed that you know i'm immersed in the family bill passes todd takes care of me i mean i I talked to Todd yesterday so it's one of the things where it's just it's wild to see just how certain families and certain people are just good people and they can just take care Take care of you and they, their legacy just will impact you forever. Because I always, even I didn't know Bill for that long. And even right before he passed, I always still say, I'm a branch off his tree. And, mm-hmm. then, just, and then to yeah. eventually find out that you're also a branch off the tree. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, oh, no doubt. It's just, you're always yeah. one person from knowing everybody.
1: So, yeah, there's, you yeah, have a six degree of separation too. There's a there's a quote that Coach Wooden and there's he's got so many great quotes and often Coach Wooden was paraphrasing or borrowing like we talked about borrowing recipes to add to your cookbook. But one of many great quotes that Wooden would use, it was initially Winston Churchill, but a life without giving is a life not worth living. A life without giving is a life not worth living. And so it's that again, back to generosity of spirit and actions and deeds. And Bill, right, demonstrated that. And now his children, right, and Cindy, his wife, they're carrying that forward in terms of the spirit of uh, a generosity and caring and community and family. And uh, another Wooden, so many great ones, right? Six Degrees of Purdue, can never have enough John Wooden. Three-time All-American with the Boilermakers. But um, he used to say the greatest thing we could do for those we love is to not do for them what they're capable of doing for themselves. Mm. The greatest thing we can do for those we love is to not do for them what they're capable of doing for themselves. And that's tied into self-reliance. And it might have been a version, again, paraphrasing from Lincoln, because Lincoln was Wooden's favorite American. Mother Teresa was, uh, yeah, Lincoln was Coach Wooden's favorite American. Mother Teresa was um, his favorite person because a life dedicated to – service and helping those in need you know poverty uh, the poor throughout the world and um, his favorite comedian was bob newhart because he liked his clever humor and um but uh, he also had a quote that the greatest thing we can do or the greatest gift a you know a parent can give their children is you know to love their spouse so in other words, you know, the model of a husband loving, you know, his wife, is the most profound or powerful gift that you can give the children, and that means you know, listening and respect and uh, deference and and all those elements. And the same, you know, the greatest gift a mother can give her children is loving and respecting her husband, uh, their parents, right? The children's parents. And so um, that's another really good one in terms of back to, you know, modeling and and emulating the right virtues and values and setting that good example, because young people are so impressionable. And the same goes with coaching that, um, you know, he always felt the best leaders, the best coaches, the best teachers, and the best parents are setting the right examples, who they are, that's going to influence and shape their children, their players, their pupils, uh, their workforce that they're managing, if they're a leader. And so that, you know, always remembering just setting the right example. And uh, Bill and Cindy and now Todd and JR are, you know, examples of people that are blazing the right trail for others to follow and setting a really good example. But uh, I could go all day on Coach Wooden and his quote, so. <laughs> <Yeah>,
0: There's <they're laughs> a great quote. And like, I mean, just like a, a JR, I mean, I mean, I, like I said, I've known JR and Todd since I was a child. I came into a situation with, like you said, with my podcast. There's a network. They sent me a contract. I know, like, I know JR since I was a child. Send text JR the contract. JR texts is right back with his red line, his ask for this, text, say this, this, that. And I hadn't talked to JR before this in I think two years. So it's one mm-hmm. of those things where I mean Bill did a great job. And from JR, I mean, the support that even from California that he gives. I mean, it's been huge. So
1: yeah, he's career. done that for he's, was, he's he's helped me with the contracts too. too. He's got he's he's uh, you know, obviously expert, he's sharp and those things we talked about earlier, the traits of attention to detail, and uh, and yet also thinking creatively, and because uh, you have to keep evolving and keep growing, and he's interested enough to where you're seeing that. You see that with Todd on the enterprise side, the business side, and the skill development side, because uh, you have to keep growing. You know, you, old, the old school virtues and values, the timeless, what I call meat, potatoes, or ABCs, don't change, but sometimes, how we present them in a, in a more fresh and original way or creative way will allow us to be more successful at passing it on. Right. Cause that's that thing. Coach Wooden again, that while he was taking psychology classes, you know, he knew what he wanted to instill the important traits, you know, cooperation and uh, initiative and, and uh, resourcefulness and ingenuity and all these important traits, but you know, they're just words. If you can't kind of show it, demonstrate it bring it to life in a three-dimensional way uh, so that younger people the students the pupils uh, can grasp it and then be able to pass it on to the next generation of why these things are so important you know uh, but you're seeing you know, you see that with JR and uh, with Todd in terms of their creativity right and you're doing it with your show right each show informs the next yeah. each experience is something you build off of you'll go back and watch and say hey this this went well i could you know maybe i could have improved on that i give you an a plus on uh, your ability to, to conversate i watched the one with you and coach Painter a couple of nights ago just in preparation nice. for this because i want to have a feel of the vibe and the energy and how you um you know kind of how you conduct right. business yeah. as we talked about you know being professional and it's a very professional manner and uh, you could tell you, were, you know the right things have been instilled along the way and we're seeing that in a three-dimensional way with the show
0: uh, no i i, I appreciate it. that's a big time that's um i mean especially from me, like for someone that's learned from the greatest to give me those type of words i i can't take it with nothing but gratitude i appreciate that that is um it means a lot for me for you to say that it means a lot for me to for you to join the podcast and be so willing to join the podcast i mean I can't, I can't say I appreciate it enough. And I know everybody out there listening, I mean, definitely appreciate it. I got nothing but great feedback when I announced that you were going to be on the podcast. So I know everybody's excited to hear nice. this. So I mean, um, Coach, again, thank you to everybody out there. Again, we have our, um, our basketball camp um, in West, we have a basketball camp in Fort Wayne, June 7th through 10th at Sports 1. We're having 30 Fort Wayne community school kids come for free if they cannot afford it. But then we're going to West Lafayette June twenty first or June twenty fourth at Faith East Community Center, and having another basketball camp there. If you need more details, RayfieldDavisBasketball um, dot Another big shout out to the Rob, Bo- Rob, the Bob Roman Automotive Group, and um, thanks for stop- sponsoring the episode. To all the boilers out there, boiler up, have a great, great, great week, great weekend, and enjoy the episode. Thank you.